Fed Talks is a podcast for theater teachers and theater education students. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Chrisman, theater education professor at Illinois State University. Each week I bring you stories and interviews from experienced K-12 theater teachers, current theater education majors, professors of theater education, and teaching artists that will warm your heart, renew your faith in teaching, and provide resources to better your practice in your theater classroom. So grab your coffee or glass of wine, plug in your headphones, or turn up your car stereo, and relax. Thanks for joining me for these heartwarming conversations and practical advice from other theater teachers on the front lines making a difference in their students' lives each and every day. I am excited to have on the podcast for this episode TJ Mannix, who is a a professor, teacher at the Professional Conservatory of Musical Theater at New York Film Academy. So TJ, welcome to the show. And uh, I am, I'm excited to hear all about your adventures and, and your journey to kind of where we are now with uh, teaching theater. So just introduce yourself and just kind of take us on that, that journey to where we are now. Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, I'm TJ Mannix. I'm based in New York City. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, I got my start in theater because someone gave me detention in Catholic school Oh, <laughs> so, for something I didn't do. And one of the only non nuns happened to be the person that gave me the detention. And by the end of detention, she somehow had talked me into, uh, joining the local children's theater. And I was on stage like a week later somehow. And, uh, and it never stopped after that. So I had the opportunity to do some professional theater, not realizing it was professional theater when I was a kid. Um, luckily, my parents handed me a check when I graduated from college saying, here's the money you made when you were a kid. We never told you. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and, you know, I, my, I was not allowed to study theater at, at university because that's not what was done. And uh, so I went into broadcast journalism. I worked in TV news for quite a while, spent a few years working overseas and... And then decided to take a year to study uh, or, or, and, and to just, so I didn't turn around when I was 50 and say, what if, uh, took a year to pursue acting and that was 24 years ago. So I've been living in New York City ever since and I work in TV and film and commercials and voiceover and uh, theater and musical theater and improvisation and musical improvisation. And about 14 years ago, I started teaching because uh, it actually happened because improvisers thought that they weren't actors, people that had studied improvisation. And uh, I had to explain it to them that, no, if, if you're in a scene and you're trying to figure out who you are, what's the relationship, where are you and what do you want? Those are the basics of Stanislavski. So basically, they had been accidentally teaching all of these improvisers to be trained actors. And turned out that improv was a really important part of the commercial industry. So I started out teaching commercial auditioning. And then about 10 years ago, I moved, uh, I was lucky to start teaching at the Professional Conservatory for Musical Theater. Uh, I teach at a number of places around New York City. Uh, And it's been an incredible uh, learning experience as well as growth experience for me as both an artist and a teacher. And uh, yeah, and then of course it all changed completely in 2020. (laughs) But that, that brings us about up to where we are right now. Uh, I did uh, I did go against my parents' wishes and get a double major in theater without telling them. So I graduated <laughs> with a degree in broadcast journalism and a degree in theater. Uh, and at graduation, they really, there's nothing they could do about it. So. <laughs> um, I, I just want to say that 
that has probably been one of my favorite introductions ever of how someone got into theater. Um, that's that's <laughs> that's a lot of fun. Um, I would love to know how how the the the, the work you did um, and the the training you did with broadcast journalism and then your work in TV new TV and news. Um, how did that prepare you for what you're doing now? In in a way, it broke me for musical theater, because working in broadcast journalism, the job is to have that inoffensive middle Atlantic accent. So I, I do have this kind of broadcaster voice, which has helped me with voiceover. But, uh, you know, I was doing an internship at a TV station down in Miami. And at the time, I was also doing a little night music at the Ring Theater at the University of Miami. And my uh, director was like, what's wrong with you? Why are you talking like a robot all of a sudden? It's because I'd been following the reporters around and speaking in a very clear and decisive way, which is not what you want to do in theater. So my broadcasting side was fighting against and trying to kill my acting side. Um, so it took a while to, and, and the acting side won. So now I'm actually allowed to use inflection. I just want to jump right in. I, I know sure. most people don't want to to rehash the last year and a half, but... Oh, what, I don't mind. What was that like teaching film and musical theater and virtual world and <laughs> uh, I, I, unique, uh, life changing? I guess in a way. I mean, yes, we've all been through such a horrible couple of years, but when we look at what happened with education, it's really specific, and and so many changes happened to everybody and every level of education. Uh, there were a number of things that happened. I had agreed to take on an adult acting for film class that met twice a week for 30 classes. We met once and then the city was shut down and I never met them again in person. So I had in my second week of teaching this class for the first time, I had to pivot and learn how to teach on zoom uh, and how to teach acting for film on zoom. Uh, same thing. I was, in the middle of teaching a, a musical scene study class for the first time, which is all about duets. Guess what you can't do on Zoom? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I, I do believe that the insanity of attempting to, to turn your entire, turn all of your lesson plans on end and, and reconfigure how you taught everything was the only thing that kept me sane while I was in quarantine in New York City. And so suddenly I was teaching here. And it was fascinating for me to figure out all of those hurdles. Like, how do I make this work? How do I fix this? How do I get them, you know, from the simplest things is, uh, oh, well, how do you do table work? So if you're teaching somebody how to sit at the table and look through a script for the first time and not make huge acting choices, but really try to listen to their partner, do a little Meisner work. Well, if you have them both pin their partner on Zoom and everybody else turns their camera off, then they're looking directly at one person and they can see them and they can, uh, and initially everyone was like, well, that's not enough, that's terrible. And a lot of educators left and said, I'm not gonna try to teach theater during this time because it's wrong. But these but these kids and adults still wanted the training and maybe that was the thing that was keeping them going 
during the pandemic. So figured out how to eventually add another layer to all of my teaching, which was, uh, you know, when you're, when you're teaching theater live, along with their preparation and, uh, you know, the given circumstances and dealing with what they're dealing with to prepare that character, they also have to deal with blocking and hitting their marks, not getting hit by scenery, finding their light, don't fall into the orchestra pit. There's a lot of things you have to do. But when they're sitting at home in front of their computer, none of those things exist anymore. So what I realized was I needed to not only make this method of teaching work online, but also create a brand new way of thinking, which was thinking cinematically. So even though they were working in theater or if they were working and acting for film and television, we would have rehearsals at the table and then I would have to get them on their feet. But on their feet, they were still alone in their bedrooms. So I started having them pick up their laptops uh, and, and do, a, do an entire run where they had to look at themselves and be aware of how they came across on camera. Um, eventually we started bringing in cell phones so they would have two different cameras. So in other, in other words, they handled their own shooting because there wasn't a crew there to do it. They didn't have a camera person and a boom mic over their head and all these other things that they had to deal with. So by having them utilize their home space and use their camera and pick it up and, and, and be aware of their camera, it, it gave them that additional level of complication that they needed so they couldn't just sit in the chair and just focus on the character because that doesn't happen in real life. So by having to you know, walk down a hallway and go from point A to point B in their dorm room or in their home space, it, it gave them a similar thing to hitting their marks on a set and being aware of their camera angles. Um, it forced them to think creatively in a way that I never had to do before. It's almost like they had to self-direct without telling them that was what they were doing. And in fact, I, I didn't give them instructions on how to do it because no one had ever done it before. And by not setting limits of how it's supposed to be done, they came up with incredibly creative ways to shoot these things. Uh, and it was a really, it's been fascinating over the last year and a half to have developed a way to reach the same objectives, but going down a completely different path. This is the highway bypass when you're used to going through downtown. Uh, so, and, and I do feel that their work, I saw their work change and grow without the traditional tools and the traditional exercises that I would normally use. I had to throw all of that out because you didn't have the ability to be there physically with somebody, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, the last year and a half has been fascinating in that respect. Teaching, I've had to incorporate uh, on-camera auditioning a lot more. I've incorporated self-tapes because whether you're auditioning for theater or for TV and film, self-tapes are what's happening right now because mm -hmm. people don't want to bring groups of people together. So incorporating that into the curriculum has also been very new and very necessary because that's not going anywhere. First of all, I, I am just 
continually amazed by teachers at all levels of of how and how quickly um, we all and I hate the word pivoted, but pivoted um, yeah. in it, when when everything happened, and then how we continued to um, over the the next year and a half. Um, it it just blows my mind how creative and how um, the the strength and the fortitude and the resiliency that that teachers had, um, and just to make it work um, and and make it work well. Um, and, and in the moment it may felt like it wasn't, um, but, but when we look back and reflect on it, what cool things we did do in, in, in the face of this crazy time. I, I miss some of it already. I mean, now that we're starting to go into hybrid learning, which by the way, whew, <laughs> hybrid learning, uh, we used to make up swear words when we were little, cause we weren't allowed to say certain things. And hybrid is a swear word as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> My God, how any teacher is able to teach in person and then constantly be aware of, oh, all the kids at home are just looking at my butt. You know, that's that's our life right now while we're trying to. And then in theater, God forbid, I mean, I, I mean, I at one point was doing scene work with a girl who was in Moscow and a girl who was in Hawaii and they were doing a scene together. Twelve hours apart. Mm hmm shooting it at the same time. And it, it was incredible. But then, you know, I also have someone in London trying to do a scene with somebody who's on campus in New York City. And you're trying to figure out how do you incorporate Zoom? And, you know, do you put them up on a TV set so the other actor has a way that they can look at them? Or do you have them on a rolling iPad so that they're more like a human being's face? And then you, you set them up on the TV and realize... Oh, uh, actor A can see actor B, but TVs don't have a camera. So actor B can't see from that angle, so it doesn't work. So you have to roll an iPad in there so that camera actor B actually has a camera that can look at the other actor from the same angle. And then you're only allowed to have one working audio <laughs> feed at a time. So you've got, you've got the Zoom feed coming into the classroom from a computer. You have the feed going through an iPad and you also have a TV so that people in the classroom can watch what's going on. So you and, and I'm there with a teaching assistant trying to handle three or four different audio feeds at a time. And anytime I want to speak, having to mute several of them and then unmute several in order to make something else happen. Uh, I did a six hour shoot in Battery Park at the bottom of Manhattan last week or two weeks ago where I had someone in St. Petersburg, Russia, doing a scene with somebody who was sitting in a park at the bottom of Manhattan. And we're having to record through Zoom so that we can edit the Zoom feed with the live things we're shooting with a camera. And we have to have that iPad in there so that they, have, they both have each other's eye line so that they, have, they can realistically deal with each other. And we're then trying to edit from... A, a downloaded Zoom feed, somehow edit that, process it together, and do that with a live shot, and then edit it all together so that it makes sense, and the eye lines make sense, and you don't break the 180 rule. Like, there are all these film things that are involved in it. Oh um, but still, it just comes down to, if you're trying to talk to people in your classroom, and there's a camera eye on you, you will inevitably have that camera pointing at the wrong part of your body and not realize it. <laughs> 
looking back over over the last year and a half, um, and now as we're in this moment, looking looking forward, um, and hopefully, um, and whether we're in hybrid, whether we're full face to face, whatever that looks like going forward, what are some things that you're going to take uh, from the last year and a half and incorporate going forward still? Uh, I absolutely am rethinking every class and how I teach because um, there, there's so there, there's so many things that happened over the last couple of years. Um, uh, very often we teach the way we were taught, mm-hmm. you know, which is kind of like the same way people parent often the way they were parented. And the way that I was taught was very uh, Eurocentric and very, very much about the work of very talented dead white guys. And, uh, and I realized that even though there are certain scenes that I feel really comfortable with, because I've been teaching from them for quite a while, I need to put myself in the same place as the students and roll with it and try new things. And so I'm constantly looking for uh, uh, BIPOC and LGBTQ and female screenwriters and playwrights. And people can say, oh, well, there there weren't any around that time. No, no, there were plenty. There were plenty of people writing. They just didn't get produced unless they were white and male. So having to do a lot of outside research, uh, opening it up to the other students, being prepared for the fact that I will make dumb mistakes that could also be offensive is a part of my new existence. Uh, (laughs) So from virtual classes, there's quite a bit that I will bring into it, but I also will not, and I cannot ever teach the same way again because the way that I was teaching before is irrelevant now. If I'm not teaching, if I'm not teaching in a way where my actors can see themselves in the work and, and authentically, then I'm locking them out. I'm not giving them the same experience that I'm giving to the students that are used to the traditional canon. In fact, I have to give a shout out to one of my colleagues at, uh, at Circle in the Square Theater School in Manhattan, uh, Nimuna Sise came in and she has created a class called Broadening the Canon. And it's a full semester long class where it's just everybody in that class constantly, every week, reading a new work by, uh, uh, by a BIPOC playwright. You know, just, just trying to make people aware because nothing will ever change unless we, uh, uh, yeah, unless we change the way we teach. So, uh, yeah, making the transition from virtual to live has been hard because I got really comfortable and felt really good about the changes and the new challenges the students had. And I don't want to leave all that behind. So now I'm having to do it all over again and figure out how to incorporate some of that and not lose it. Because some of the new things were fantastic and really worked towards getting through to students and giving them an experience that really pushed them, challenged them, opened up their brains in new ways. And I, I hate the idea of going back to those dusty old lesson plans that I had before. Well, I think it's it's important that we we as educators continue to find 
find all those new things and and not be afraid to try new things and when those things work putting them into what we do um and strengthening what we're already doing um and i i i a thousand percent agree with you on on the the work of the 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 racial awakening and reckoning that we had over over the last year and a half and and that we can't go back we can't, it's not an option um and i i this this past weekend i went to see um we have the illinois shakespeare festival here right in town where i'm i'm, I'm living and right uh I went to see the winter's tale and in it, person, in person, in person, oh. it was, <laughs> it was the first show I've seen in person in a year and a half. And it was uh, amazing. Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, and it, it, it was even, it was, the experience was even enhanced because I know our, our Shakespeare festival has made a, a concerted effort and intentionality uh, used to, to, incorporate more actors of color um and and from from all races and walks of life and it was just so beautiful to see this cat this company of 12 actors and and seven of the 12 were were actors of color um and then we my husband and i went and uh, the next day watched a little bit of the bbc old recording of the winter's tale because he there were some things he missed and he wanted to catch back up on and it was like this is really white. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it after seeing what we saw. So, um. well, we just we just had um, at PCMT, um, sorry, at the Professional Conservatory Musical Theater, which is in Manhattan, which is part of the New York Film Academy, but it's its own separate entity. Um, uh, one, I love it because it's all working performers, so so you don't have anybody going. Make sure you get your black and white headshot, you know. Um, but they, uh, uh, what they're directing for the students is really cutting edge and interesting. And, um, twice we had to cancel our, our musicals because of COVID. And so, uh, one was, uh, they actually did an entire virtual musical and then we've done two musicals, um, outside in a, in a band shell in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where the students were socially distanced, they were wearing both masks and plexi, and they were miked, and the audience was spread out completely around this amphitheater, and uh, they, the school commissioned uh, something called Not Working, a take on Studs Terkel, but all of these songs from all of these composers who weren't working, they were like, all right, all right, all right, and they created this incredible show that encapsulates everything that was happening over the last two years. And within these acts, they, they divided up so that if you were living with somebody, you were in a pod, you would be in a number together. And so they were having to rethink everything. Um, and it's just, I mean, the show itself was brilliant, but to be able to do something like that and create live theater and really think outside the box and then we did a rooftop version of Pippin where our Jesus and Judas were both female, black and Latina. And it was on a rooftop that had these cement stairs and the, uh, the crowd was all across a lawn and spread out. And all the, the cast was again, 
uh, separated in, in pods. Uh, and the whole thing took place outdoor and somehow outdoors and somehow they managed to sound balance the whole thing. They also shot each one of these theatrical events so that they could be viewed online. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm just so happy I'm surrounded by creative people because when something goes wrong in the middle of a show, you, you improvise, you deal with it, you know, you yeah. just do. And we have taken that spirit of let's put a show on in the barn and we've really rolled with it over the last year and a half. And I'm sure you're hearing a lot of stories from people who, you know, to the best of their ability, pivoted yeah. to make it happen. And I have no idea what your original question was. I, I don't either, but I appreciate where we went. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you, you mentioned, um, working with students from all over the world at the same yes. time. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about your experience working with international students. Uh, I was a very sheltered suburban kid. I mean, I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida, which is like the definition of a, of a suburb. And when I went to the University of Miami, I had never been exposed to anyone who didn't look like me, really. And I had no concept of it. I just had a very, I had my very self-contained, sheltered uh, world. And while I was down there, you know, every weekend there was a different festival. There was like Jamaican Gumbe Festival and Kayocho. And every week there was a different cultural festival that you could go to. And of course, you know, my best friends were from Trinidad and from, uh, uh, and were Cuban and were from all over the world. And I learned to speak Spanish accidentally and uh and then when I, I wound up i had the opportunity to work for an international school and uh and realized wow so many of these students from like 23 countries don't have a full understanding of english and they're thrown into it and having to just run with it um so now in my teaching wherever i teach i'll always check in with everybody on the first day and i'll ask everybody where they're from and Ask them for their town, because a lot of times, you know, even in the U.S., people will say, well, I was, where are you from? Chicago. I'm like, oh, OK, what suburb of Chicago? Where are you from? Well, it's outside of Chicago. And eventually you find out they're from Iowa, but they just don't think anybody's <laughs> going to know where they're from. So one, letting them letting them speak their truth and say where they're from. And then, of course, I'll, I'll, I'll write it out phonetically. And when I do attendance on the second day, I do attendance just based on their hometowns. So they know that someone actually remembered where they're from. Uh, and on the first day, I'll tell them I speak very quickly. I, I get excited about things. So feel free to ask me a question or ask me to slow down. I know that people from different cultures, it is often considered insulting to tell a teacher or professor, I didn't understand that, that you're, in, you're insulting them and that's part of the culture. And I make it really clear on day one that that is not part of this culture, that I do want you to ask me to slow down. I will never be offended. I will never be angry if you ask me a question. Um, and then I will also, I'll ask everybody what languages they speak. And by doing that very often, you know, you'll have somebody from South Africa who steps in and says, I speak 11 languages. And you see the Americans who have never been out of their hometowns going. <laughs> because that sheltered American approach is, oh, if you don't speak English, you're dumb. And they speak 11 languages. So I find out how many languages everyone speaks. And I purposely go to the English speakers last and hear one, 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 
a little German one. But I'll also tell them, if you feel like I'm ever talking down to you or if I'm speaking slowly, um, tough, suck it up. Try taking this class in Japanese. And so on that first day, I try to level the playing field. One, show respect for the international students that are doing a huge thing trying to take a class in another language. But also give a wake-up call to the English speakers and say, you're not special because you speak English. And also make sure that they're aware that in this classroom, I have full respect for all of these people, regardless of their language ability in English. And that sets a tone that I will not tolerate anybody getting upset about someone asking questions, um, looking down on somebody else because of their language skills. Uh, and, and I find that it's often a bit of a wake up call for those people who only speak English. Oh, there's a world outside of Kansas. Uh, no offense, Kansas. Um, so that alone as a, as an introductory thing for my classes, I find often four years later, I'll hear from those students and say, Oh, that was the first day I felt seen. Mm. No, or that was the first day that I felt empowered. And I also will tell them, I say, look, if, if your other teachers are talking too quickly, raise your hand, ask them to speak slowly, ask them a question. And if they won't do it, come back and tell me. They need an, everybody needs an ally. And, you know, the people that come from other countries and speak other languages are doing above and beyond the work yeah. of people that are saddled with, but I have an accent. I speak Southern. No, no, that's not a challenge. <laughs> Try taking this class in another language. So I, I just think that an acknowledgement of, an acknowledgement of language, an acknowledgement of culture, an acknowledgement of the challenge that other people might face is super important for just making sure there's a level playing field and making sure that the wrong people aren't over empowered. Yeah, I was, as you were talking, I, I empower is, is the word that kept, is kept coming up in my mind and you finally said it, but like just how empowering that must be for, for a student to, who's never had an advocate and a, and a, and an ally like that to, to say, no, ask me, please yeah. stop me. Tell me what, 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 what are you struggling with? And, and to, to, to help them form that agency for themselves as they're, as they're here and working and, and just empowering is, is a fabulous word for that. Well, and I mean, I'm very lucky that I had the opportunity to teach overseas. So I taught in a bunch in, in I, I had the opportunity to teach and travel through like you know, 13 different countries. So, Regardless of where you're teaching and what you're teaching, if you can remind your students that there's a world outside of their town, that's only going to benefit them. And despite what some people might think these days, education is never a bad thing. So the more people have awareness of the world around them, the better they're going to be as an actor. If you can't, if you can't see things from other points of view, what are you going to do? Play yourself for your whole life? Mm. That's not interesting. And nobody's going to write for you. <laughs> um, I would I would add something that because the uh, the PCMT has only been around for like 14 years 
we've been able to innovate in a lot of ways. And one thing that I love about that is that uh, we threw around the idea of an equity statement on the first day, something that says, hey, this is me, this is how I teach, here's the rules of my classroom. And so I have an equity statement I say every time I teach, even if it's just for a one-day workshop, that, that just that makes it very clear where I stand on things and tells my students that they can hold me accountable and that I will make mistakes, but I'm going to try and that there's an open dialogue. You know, if I assign you something and you're like, wow, this is really problematic. Could you not see that? I will learn from that. <laughs> um, so the, the, the equity statement itself is, um, it's, it's, it's really important to me. And I, I, uh, so even when, uh, whether anybody asks for it or not, I'll always include it. Well, if, if I'm not, it, it, please, if I'm putting you on the spot, please just tell me so and we can move on. But it, could, oh, you, sure. could you give the example of that for, uh, for teachers who may not know what that is? Uh, so an equity statement, um, mine, here, mine is, I don't have it memorized, but I wrote it. <laughs> um, so day one, after I've met everybody, I'll get all of their attention and tell them whether they're in middle school or college. Every day I will work to maintain an anti-racist classroom where we respect each other and our differences. I want to celebrate and recognize what you bring to the table, regardless of your age, country of origin, language, race, ethnicity, religion, gender, sexual orientation, gender expression, ability, and other visible and non-visible differences. I will also strive to introduce and assign work from talented BIPOC, LGBTQ, and female playwrights and screenwriters who have previously been overlooked in the traditional canon. I encourage my students to keep the lines of communication open regarding any roles that I assign. And remember that our artistic work is both personal and vital. And without artists, cultures fail. So that kind of sums up my whole approach. And on day one, I try to put it out there and say, because I, you can't go into a classroom today without all of those things existing. Correct. You know, my, I have so many students that are neurodivergent that are, are on the spectrum that maybe even aren't aware that they are. Um, uh, acknowledging that, that it's okay to have an open dialogue. You don't have to sit with it and be upset about it. Um, that it's not just about, it's not just about race and sexuality, but about gender expression and ableism. And, uh, and if you're going to be a teacher, the, one of my, one of my favorite things about, about teaching, the story that I think sums up so much about it is the idea of training fleas for a flea circus that the way that you can train them is you put all the fleas in a jar and you screw the top on and you just hear ting, 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 ting as they hit the, they hit the top. And eventually they learn. They stop hitting the rim. They just jump just high enough. And then when you take the top off, they'll never jump out again. And I feel like that's our teaching. If you tell students you can only go this far, that's as far as they'll ever go. And... And it's our responsibility as teachers that we can't teach the way we were taught 30 years ago or 10 years ago. 
we have to make the changes. And, and if you can't shine your light on every student, it's your fault if they feel like they're in the dark. Hmm. Wow, that was poetic. I've never said that before. That was good. <laughs> Don't stitch that on a throw pillow for me. That's going to be a pull-out quote for the social media post. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're you're 100% correct. And, and I... I don't remember if it was in my freshman class or my junior class last year, but we were, we were discussing some diversity topics and, and some, uh, all of my students, unless they just aren't talking and and they, they think completely otherwise they're, they're, they're floored at colleagues in other classes, like their other education classes who do not feel that way and who, who do not believe in uh, DEI work at all in what we're doing in education. And um, I made a statement to them. I said, well, if you don't, then you're probably in the wrong profession, in my opinion. Yeah. And yeah, they were leave. all like, oh, I'm like, yeah, people need to hear that. If you can't be there for every kid sitting in your classroom, why are you doing this? Yeah. TJ, I wanted to ask you, as, as a, a teacher who is not um, well-versed in film, um, and my, my area is theater and I know enough about musical theater to be dangerous. Um, what are some things, it, it's a two part question, but I'm just gonna ask this first part right now. What, um, what are some things that teachers can be doing to help prep their students as they're looking at professional and post high school training? <laughs> so many things. Oh my God. <laughs> um, everyone has an opinion. So just because one person has an opinion, uh, I do exercises about type, about like, what's your type when you walk in the room? And everybody will always say, well, you tell me. And I refuse to tell a student what their type is because that's a journey you have to go on for yourself. Mm -hmm. In college, I had a professor who I really respected tell me my type was plumber. And it, it's like the cap went on. Like, I was like, oh my God, this woman I respect thinks I'm, I'm just that. And when I do exercises with them about type, you know, because you do have to figure out what are you presenting when you walk in the room? Not everybody is Meryl Streep who can also play an 85-year-old male rabbi in Angels in America. You know, when you walk in the room, you're going to get cast as you. You're going to get cast as your type. They're not going to go, wow, with a lot of prosthesis. No, they're going to look at you when you walk in the room. So a, a huge part of that is that you have to be comfortable with yourself, which as actors is part of the challenge. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, never stop studying. Uh, I tell my classes, uh, I know that this morning you were in a classroom with somebody who has their doctorate in theater and they, they, they can approach things theoretically and uh, I'm, and I tell them I'm the journeyman actor who had a BA, but then worked in theater and film for 25 years. So I'm going to teach you, I, I want you to walk out of the class with skills that you can use tomorrow on the set or on the stage. Um, but making sure that they know just because I'm using different terminology than that other teacher. And just because I might give a different approach doesn't mean that they black, that, that they, uh, uh, um, cancel each other out. And I use that old tool belt, you know, I, somebody else might say here, this is, this is one way to approach it. And I'm like, nah, just hammer it in. Well, when you get out onto the real world, 
every director is going to have a different approach. Every director is going to approach things differently. They all have different training. They come from different places. They come from different cultures, different areas of the country or the world. So you, you never know how they're going to speak to you and how they're going to express what they want and need from you. So the more different tools you have, the better. Every, just so if each teacher speaks differently rather than being confused by it, it's another color in your palette. You know, it's another tool in your tool belt. Um, a lot of students want things to be black and white and it's not. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll work with students on something like, uh, uh, you know, in, in theater, you have to deal with the fourth wall. Uh, well in film, you have to deal with that. What is that wall between you and the camera? And if you have crew here, what are you visually putting there so that you are not actually looking into the camera? And there are different ways to approach it. And I tell people, look, eight out of 10 of you, this is going to work perfectly. And two out of 10, you're not wrong. If it doesn't work for you, you just need to come talk to me and I'm going to give you a different approach because all of our brains work differently. So you need, to, you need to realize that just because someone teaches you a certain approach, it doesn't mean that you're not capable. It just means you might need a different approach. Um, some of us are really visual learners. Some of us run with our gut. Some of us are very intellectual about the whole process. Some of us are very physical actors. So depending on how a director speaks to you or a teacher speaks to you, it may not resonate with you because you need to get up and do it in order for it to make sense. You need the muscle memory. Or some people need to like write everything down and see it and then they can get that visual. Some people need to hear it. They need to hear the you know, some people, if, if there's not a table read on the first day of a rehearsal, they don't know where their character is and what the hell's going on because they need to hear it out loud. So I would say um, be prepared to work hard, to work too hard, to get rejected a lot and deal with it and realize that your job is to audition. Your job is not to get the part. Your job is to audition and be really good at it and to have fun with it. Because if you're not having fun with auditions, then why are you in this career? <laughs> the majority of what you do is audition for things. And if you hate it, you know, I had plenty of friends who were engineers in college and they hated it. And sure, they stepped right out into some big money jobs, but they still hate it. So choose a career that you love. And if you can't love the auditioning, then you're never going to have that healthy relationship with your career. You can acknowledge that it's a pain in the ass sometimes and that, that I, have a, uh, I have a little sign on my desk that says, don't make it mean anything. And I tell my students, every time you walk out of an audition, the first thing you're gonna do is go through the list of things that you did wrong and why you're not gonna get the part or why you didn't get the part. And we get into those loops of like these shame spirals of like all the things that are wrong with you, why you didn't get the part. You know, and I let them know things like, you know, I was up for a national spot for something that would have been like so much money in a national commercial. And I was paired with this woman and we really clicked and that we were at first refusal. We were on hold for the spot, which meant it was like 99% ours. And then I didn't get it. And nobody told me why. And I was devastated. And I was like, what did I do wrong? And it was only about six months later that a casting director mentioned, hey, by the way, I, I know we don't talk about these things, but you were so good the girl that the woman you were going to be paired with booked a pilot 
So we had to go to the second woman and you and she weren't a match. So we went to the second man hmm. and I beat myself up for six months over losing this huge thing. What did I do wrong? You know, and students need to know it's not always your fault. You might look like the director's ex-girlfriend. <laughs> you know, yes. you literally have, <laughs> so don't make it mean anything. And don't beat yourself up and move on. Don't beat yourself up forever. What should, what should a good uh, theater teacher who is helping their students in locating schools to go to, um, if they're wanting to study film, musical theater, um, what are some things that they should be looking for in a good solid program? Uh, I think they need to, they need to be aware of how much it costs. Uh, if they're in a position where they're able to afford certain schools, great. Um, they also need to look at whether a four-year or a two-year program is best for them. If they're able to afford a four-year program or if they know and they have the confidence and the experience to step in and hopefully get a scholarship, that's great. But they have to think about that. They have to prepare for it. They have to do those self-tapes or show up in person to, to have a, a live audition, depending on what year it is. Um, but some, for some people, a, a two-year certificate program might give them all the training that they need. They just won't have that piece of paper. Sometimes that piece of paper opens doors. You know, there are definitely, there are certain schools that have a mafia in place. And if you come in with a degree from that school, they're like, ooh, we'll see you because you went to that fancy school. But also, if you have good, strong, solid training, you should be able to walk into the room and prove your worth. So I think when you're, when you're, when you're looking at collegiate programs or post-collegiate mm -hmm. programs, um, look at... Yeah, look at look at financially what's best for you. Um, look at the location of it. Are you going to a place where you can learn about theater or are you going to a place where look at what you want out of your career? For instance, where I teach, uh, it's a two-year certificate program that is now, it's, it's about to become a full four-year BFA program, but there's still a two-year certificate program where in the second year after studying musical theater, you also get on-camera training. So where my job is to <laughs> lovingly beat the musical theater out of them so that they can function as an actor on camera without performing at that high of a energy and you know, it looks like kabuki theater when they're on camera. Um, and in that case, we, at the end of their second year, they shoot an original movie musical because we're part of a film school. So we bring in a full professional crew and all of the teachers... Uh, we have composers and lyricists that are on staff. So they write an original movie musical for that, sp that specific class. I mean, or we write three movie musicals for that graduating class. We shoot them really fast, guerrilla style over like a 10 day period. But then they walk out of there with a 20 to 25 minute original musical that shows what they can do in musical theater, but also shows how they can do it in film because musicals are back on the screen. Um, if you only want to pursue theater, great. If you want to study classical theater, if you want to just study Shakespeare and Chekhov and Moyer, what do you want to study? Or do you want a career in television and film? 
or uh, yeah, it's um, most of us don't get exposed to a whole lot when we're in high school, depending on our teacher mm -hmm. and depending on how much wisdom they can give and how our brain, how much our brains can absorb during our junior and senior year yep. of high school. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just think there's a lot of factors involved, but you also have to be realistic that, that depending on where you go to school, the amount of money that you put into it without scholarship, you may not make that money back in the near future. Because you're going to start out with the not so well paying jobs often. Most people do. Some people will jump right in and do stellar work and that's great. And they'll get picked up by a brilliant agent and you know, they'll roll out the red carpet. But that's a story for 95% of the actors. So, yeah. You know, also, do you want to be famous or do you want to be good? A lot of people have never been asked that before. Is it okay to want both? Sure. But eventually working actors, sometimes the fame thing fades and you're like, now I'm really happy with what I'm doing. I love that I can pay my bills as an actor. And people will see you in, the, in, in an elevator and go, did we go to high school together? And you're like, no, you don't know me. And you still will never know me. I will never be famous, but I work and I'm happy in my job. The next who are famous, what can you do? It happens. <laughs> Well, I, I want to hear one of your favorite stories from your teaching career so far. Um, one of those war stories, funny moments, wow. touching moments, horror story. Really fascinating for me seeing the change in from the old guard to the new in terms of... Um, I remember going into a classroom and like, why are there so many holes in the walls? And it was from old school teachers who were trying to provoke an emotional response from their actors. And... Uh, there are ways to teach acting that work and worked in different decades with different people who had different experiences. Um, we're dealing with students today who have been exposed to the entire world and have the whole world at their disposal. Whereas some of us didn't have cable. Um, and I've seen programs change over from the cult of personality type teachers who are like, no, 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 everything I say is amazing and you should worship me and I'm going to break you down like it's boot camp. And if you cry and you're in a puddle on the floor, I will feel like I'm a successful acting teacher. Uh, and that was very much a part of what things used to be through the seventies and eighties. And that kind of, that kind of teaching is you're, you're dealing with different human beings now mm -hmm. who, who are, uh, you know, someone, someone along the way invented therapy. The word trigger came along. Um, and not that you need to coddle your students, but I, I have a lot of students who are veterans. We have a really strong veteran program at, at the, mm. at the film Academy and, to have a non-military acting teacher try to provoke a, a, a student to anger, somebody who has PTSD. Um, so I think for me, getting the opportunity to connect with students who either have 
some who have had discussions who have PTSD for a variety of reasons, and whether they've shared that with me or alluded to it, being able to acknowledge, uh, you know, I, I'm a New Yorker. I happen to have been a first responder after 9-11, and I worked on the pile for six months, and I worked down there, and it was a lot, and it was a lot to get over, and, and I, on that rare occasion with a one-on-one -on -one with a student, I'll tell them, you know what, I, I don't use that in my acting. Hmm. That is compartmentalized for a reason, and I'm very happy to keep some of it locked away. That you don't need to do. You, theater is not necessarily trauma porn. Hmm. It's not about making you <clears throat> reach in and have rivulets of blood all over the floor. Um, sometimes you need to find another way to approach a situation. Uh, I would not recommend that a student tap into, I mean, depending on where they are when they're recovery from something, you don't tap into like a, an assault and try to use that in your work. And, and a, a teacher who tries to get someone to do that is dangerous and it's unethical and it's, and it's pretty stupid. If you were of a certain age where you're teaching and you don't understand that there are, there are other ways to approach things, you know, especially, you know, you're dealing with whether it's high school or college. Um, you can't demand that you open up your most horrific unhealed memory. So to be able to have a, have, have being able to have moments with students where you can talk about that without, without not a therapist, it's not, you don't have to go into what the trauma might be. But as a, as a fellow human being, to be able to say there are things in my life that I don't use in my work and watching them go, what? really? Because other people have said, no, if you want to work, you need to turn your guts inside out and you have to. Yeah, you have to do the work, but you also need to. Um, nobody gets paid enough to. To relive trauma. And watching a student be able to then find another way to actually deal with rage in a scene without tapping into something that would make them untethered, that is amazing for me. To be able to help somebody get there in a different way and to be able to, um, to realize that that bringing themselves to a role doesn't mean uh, uh, cutting yourself open. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, sometimes that works for some people. Sometimes that works partially. But forcing that to happen in a classroom without an understanding of that person's existence is, is not, is just not wise for an educator in 2021. Yeah. You know, especially if you grew up in a time when you were like, just push it down, everything will be okay. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, why don't you just drink? If you drink, you'll never think about that bad thing again. Um, so that was a pretty deep one. But I think in terms of that, of, of working towards something dramatic uh, uh, and just being able to 
just giving them permission to find another way there. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you going there. Um, I, that's part of my research. My current research is trauma-informed practices. Um, and uh, my husband is a, a mental health professional. So we, we work together to, we're working on some trauma-informed directing practices for high school teachers. Um, and I think, I think it kind of goes back to what you, you've done for your international students is that, that sense of empowerment. And for our students to say, no, that's a boundary for me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go there. Um, and, and I appreciate you saying, um, let's find another way to get there. Because what I didn't hear you say is don't do those plays because mm-hmm. there's some amazing work out there, yeah. um, but there's healthier ways to get at what we're going for to tell those stories. Yeah. yeah. It, it, there is the imagination <laughs> and there are also a lot of different methods. Yeah. You know, there's a reason why there's something called the drama bookshop in New York city. Cause there's a whole lot of books with a whole lot of different methods to get you there. So, you know, and as a, as, a, as a teacher, you have to acknowledge that the way you were taught is not the only way as well. And so I try to, I, you know, sure, I try to impose certain things that work for me, but it took me a while to realize, oh, a certain percentage of students are not pushing back. They just don't work that way. Mm-hmm. And my methods aren't going to work on everybody. And you have to acknowledge that and acknowledge that it's not like standing in front of a room and saying, I'm a bad teacher, but saying, we're all individuals and you're all different and we're all, and I, and I'll help you find a way to get there. Even if it's brand new, you know, working with, working with students that are like neurodivergent people on the spectrum and things, finding a way to, to work with them and celebrate the fact that they may be really smart and really funny but they're not going to follow the same rules as everybody else because they're going to need more breaks or they're going to need to shut off occasionally or they might need to step out of the room because they know how to regulate their own, you know, how, how, they, how they function. Um, yeah, you can't turn everybody into a, into a mini-me. That's not how it works. Yeah. I, I would just say that, um, I mean, I'm sure that many of the things that we talked about here uh, uh, depending on where you grow up and where you teach, some of these things you might look at and go, "Ugh, damn liberal New Yorker trying to talk about." But, but you can use your own terminology. But just realize, you can't beat sensitivity into someone, and you don't want to beat the sensitivity out of them. So maybe just avoid the beatings altogether. <laughs> Um, I don't care where you're from, even something so simple as, even if you don't acknowledge it, um, before, when I introduce everybody, I'll say, Hey, you know, tell me your name, what you prefer to be called. Um, and if you want to share your pronouns, mine or he, him, don't mandate it and don't ignore it. I've seen students over the years look and say, watch their eyes light up. And then they will give their, the pronouns they were assigned at birth. But, but, you know, they will say later on, hey, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with my, my gender expression, but it, it, it established, oh, this, this teacher may actually respect that we are human beings with different language differences, different approaches to things. And it, it, I am not... Um, 
I, I was once told, uh, another faculty member said, the students said that I'm a female version of you. And I was like, why is that? They said, because nobody knows anything about our personal lives. <laughs> and I, you know, but I'm still there and pouring my heart into them. But it doesn't mean that I'm giving them the information I'd give to a therapist. <laughs> but it's okay to acknowledge that you're human, acknowledge you make mistakes, acknowledge that you're on a journey. Uh, you know, I, I, found a, uh, I found a pilot this week that I'm using with a, a student from Nigeria. And, and she laughed because one of the things that was written was clearly written for a joke, but has nothing to do with uh, uh, African languages. And, and then the other person was written as Southeast Asian. And I approached somebody and said, hey, I want you to read this and tell me whether or not this is problematic for you because I know you are not Southeast Asian. And I want you to know that we're not submitting this to Sundance. So I'm willing to make some alterations here to make the character appropriate to you. But I want you to look at what the character is all about and see whether that resonates and whether that's, I don't know, you just have to be prepared to, to um, acknowledge that your students are not you and they are different than you and they come from all over the world and they have different life experience. And that, that idea of an equity statement, it takes one minute Sometimes it allows several people in the class to exhale, even if they never discuss it with you. It just allows them to have one class where they're like, oh, I'm not going to be uh, yelled at or belittled because of who I am in this class. And at least this faculty member is acknowledging that they're going to attempt mm -hmm. to respect who I am and attempt to um, introduce new and interesting and relevant uh, scene work, whether it's theater or TV or film. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, TJ, what is a resource that is a must have for, for theater teachers that you are currently using or have used in the past? <laughs> One is my fellow teachers. Uh, it, regardless of how long you've been teaching, there are other people who have more or less experience than you do who have better and more innovative ideas and you need to put your ego aside sometimes and be able to say hey i'm having trouble with this anybody have any ideas and whether that's in a separate uh email thread or a, a, a facebook or slack group or something or whether you go in anonymously into something on the internet to talk to other teachers you're not the only person to have had a certain experience there are other people who can relate they may not be under your roof where you work but my, uh, uh, my big actor ego as a teacher has had to like, go, okay, get your ego in check and ask somebody else. You don't have all the answers and you don't need to um, try to impart wisdom that isn't wise because you have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Um, so that I think is important. Even it's not just the, 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 the wise instructor who's 20 years older than you, but it's the instructor 20 years younger than you that says, oh, this is what we do. And it's really, and I'm like, wow, that I never would have thought of that. Be open to that. Um, I also think having a resource that says, um, if, uh, if you teach this, then 
consider teaching this, right? So if you're going to teach Chinatown, maybe also teach 12 Years a Slave. Or if you're going to teach The Graduate, maybe you should look at Lady Bird because it's directed by Greta Gerwig. By, you know, or if you're going to do Fargo about a specific culture, maybe do Monsoon Wedding. Right. So be able to um, being able to have a spreadsheet or something available that says, all right, here's the stuff I always teach. This is the traditional stuff in the canon that I'm comfortable with. This is what I was taught. These are the things I like as a per, as me, a person of a certain age and a person genera- a certain generation. But put that spreadsheet together that says the names of the alternative screenwriter and their cultural background or their gender or ability, disability, their sexuality, whatever, so that you, so that you're not just saying this is a blank movie, insert ethnicity here. Someone who has said that and been called out for it mm-hmm. and was horrifically embarrassed and, and, and still learning how to be better at it. Um, so, so yeah, I think a spreadsheet like that, something that for your theater department, for, or whatever, whatever you're teaching, having something like that, that you can start out as that one faculty member who's interested in it or passionate about it and be able to have other people add to it, like in a, uh, make it a, a, like a Google, a Google document that can be added to Mm so that other people can incorporate the things that they know and the things that they've been exposed to. Um, yeah, I think something like that is really important for people who either don't think they need to change or want to change but feel helpless and don't have the time and feel like they can't do it and they're not hip. See, even hip, hip, God, who, says, who uses the word hip? but that they're not culturally relevant enough to make choices. And yeah, and I think with something like that, with a spreadsheet like that, you need to be aware that it's not even that, it's how you present it and that you will make mistakes and you need to be okay with that, you know, and, and realize that it's not that you want, it's not, I want to be their friend. It's I'm a faculty member who acknowledges that I am also making changes and that I'm imperfect. And if I make a mistake, I'm going to learn from it and do better the next time. But a lot of faculty are afraid to lose face. And so they're afraid to make changes because they want to stick with the things they're comfortable with. And having a, a, a resource like that, like that kind of a spreadsheet, I think, is... It's also a way it could, things can be added anonymously and it's a way for mm-hmm. everybody to add information and add ideas without judging who it came from and didn't come from. That's good. Because it's touch. Nobody wants to be labeled that problematic teacher. Mm-hmm. And so some people are afraid to make any changes because they don't want to make a change that will get them in trouble. Whereas not making changes might be the trouble. And it's how we respond to those when, when it's brought to our attention and being willing to listen and accept that and, and make the changes. So, yeah. 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 Well, you have dropped many words of wisdom throughout this whole conversation. Um, I just but- started turning gray this week. So. 
Um, so do, uh, do you have any words of wisdom, parting words of wisdom for uh, that new teacher entering the field or that veteran teacher just needing an encouraging word right now as we're heading back into wow. the school year? Uh, it's not about you. Uh, you embrace what you were taught and embrace what worked for you if you were out there as a working actor or if you are strictly a theater professional. Embrace what you've learned, but you have to let go of how you learned it and the resources you learned from and change with the times. And it's not just random and it's not just something that's this year and of the moment. We're not going back. It's not going to happen. So if you still, it doesn't mean that you have to discard all of the things that you love. You don't, we're not going to stop teaching Shakespeare. It's not going to happen. But if you're going to teach the canon of Shakespeare, you can also teach the canon of August Wilson. And I can't say that I am going to, am going to teach it as somebody who has experienced the, the experience of, of, of a black American of each one, but even acknowledging that there's a, each one of those plays and that cycle is from a different decade. And really it's so rich. And it doesn't mean that we're getting rid of everything else. It just means that we're making room and that some things, some things are going to go. Maybe you're not going to teach four Tennessee Williams plays. It's not going to happen. Instead, well, maybe you can teach something else, you know, and if you're going to teach, if you want to teach the Godfather, great. But instead of teaching all three of them, maybe you can teach the farewell about Asian American, Asian American experience or, you know, uh, um, the um, uh, Parasite won the Oscar for Best Picture. So did The Godfather. What's the difference? One of them you may have grown up with, the other one you didn't. But guess what? They both won. And we, we have to be prepared to change. And if you're afraid to change, then take a class and, and dig in a little bit because ask somebody for help who you know maybe just graduated from college and knows about grants or knows, hey, here's a one-hour-long class that can give you some basic information about how not to be stuck in the past or how to embrace the things that you love that made you the actor you are but still grow because they're not you and they didn't grow up in Boca Raton, Florida in a like super white suburb with your one black friend and one Asian friend and one Latino friend thinking I'm diver I live in a really diverse community you need to grow and you need to be prepared for those growing pains. And you need to realize that you're not going to have all the answers. And I know you want to be that person who stands in front of the classroom and knows everything. But if you're going to be a human being, you're not perfect. So take risks, ask for help and acknowledge when you've made a mistake, that's not going to change things. It's the teacher that gets up and makes a mistake and says, you go to the Dean's office. How dare you challenge me? That's the teacher that nobody respects. The teacher that says, let's talk about this. What was the mistake and why was it a mistake? Or let's talk about what else we could use. I'm still on the journey. I'm nowhere near perfect. 
I plan on making a lot of mistakes and getting called into the principal's office or whatever the version of that is, as I have been this year, when I'm trying and failing to make everything perfect. So part of it is, is leaving your ego aside and acknowledging that you will not be perfect the day you graduate from, with your degree in education. You will not be perfect the first time you teach after a career in the business. You are going to make mistakes. You're going to make dumb mistakes. You're going to make painful mistakes. You're going to make embarrassing mistakes that you might get called out on by your students, which is horrific. But then you'll learn from it and not do that again, which is good. So just be prepared that you are not perfect and you are not expected to be perfect. Rely on the other faculty members. Ask people for help. And if you're in an environment where they expect you to be perfect and they're not providing you with the help, then go outside of your circle and get the help somewhere else because there's a lot of places out there for good teachers who want to be better, you can get that information if you're not getting it from your own principal or your own school board who are more concerned with optics or test scores. And I'll, I'll bring it back to my original, my equity statement, which is that our artistic work as teachers, as students, as actors is personal so it's personal for the students, and it's personal for us, and it's vital. And without artists, cultures fail. So find a way to teach art. Without art, why bother? Well, TJ, I appreciate you joining me today to talk. And uh... Oh, absolutely. Oh, how nice to actually be able to talk about this <laughs> As opposed to just doing it. Yeah. You are welcome to come back and talk about it anytime. So thank oh. you, thank you, thank you. And uh, I wish you all the best with this year and with all the endeavors you have coming up. And to you as well, thank especially you. with your research. Uh, give me a shout if there's anything I can help with. And to everybody else who's out there, you are not alone. It's really easy to feel like you're the only one dealing with all of the insanity of the last two years, let alone the insanity of... 2018 trying to be a teacher before all this happened yeah. uh we've got one of the hardest jobs in the world and it can be one of the most rewarding and just keep in mind that one teacher who saw you that one teacher who knew your name and looked you in the eye and said you were valuable and remember that 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 core thing of teaching of never goes away of being able to shine your light on some kid or some adult and say, you have value. That person may never forget that and it might change the trajectory of their life. So on that day when you have a headache and you're over it and you want to strangle somebody and that one kid comes in, give them that extra minute and look them in the eye and listen and shine your light on them if you can because somebody did that for me and somebody did that for the people who did it for me. And hopefully the people I did it to are going to do it for the next generation because acting is tribal and we will always be around that campfire learning from our elders. So, um, yeah, be a part of the community. Don't be, don't be uh, the ego-driven teacher who makes it all about them. Remember what makes, makes this whole thing important in the first place. Pass it on. 
And that is a wrap for this episode of Fed Talks. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. Tune in next week for the next one. We have so many great teachers coming up and so many that have already been with us. So if you are not already subscribed to the podcast, go on your favorite podcast provider, subscribe to us, rate us, leave us five stars, review us. More importantly, share the podcast with those theater educators in your life who you think could benefit from what we're doing here on the show. Visit our website, www.fedtalks.com for the pages for all the teachers who have been on our show. Email me at fedtalkspodcast at gmail.com. If you have an idea for a future guest on the show or suggestions or topics that you'd like to have on the show, email me. I love interacting with you on there and I always follow up. Follow us on all of the social media that's out there. We are out there on Twitter at Theater Ed Talks. On Facebook, we have a Fed Talks page and Instagram Fed Talks Podcast. Once again, our website is www.fedtalks.com. Thank you, teachers, for all that you do. Thank you for listening. Continue to be the lights that you are and changing all those lives. I appreciate you. Take care.